Well, thank you again for having Jenny and me here at your weekend away. It's a real privilege to be here and a super encouragement for us uh, to see your love for being together and wanting to feed on God's word while you are together as a church family. It's really beautiful. Um, as, I'm, um, as I'm setting up each day or each talk, the outline for the talk will be up on the screen. This one's a very brief outline. If you want to copy it down in your notes before we go, feel free to. They're all about the same length, uh, these points, and there'll be some sub-points in uh, future talks, but this talk, just the three main points in the intro. Feel free to grab that down. Let's ask God to help us uh, concentrate and learn well from his word so that we can honour Jesus as he deserves. Please pray with me. <coughs> Our Father, we're very thankful to you for all the gifts that you've bestowed on us so generously. Thank you for life in Jesus. Thank you for inviting us to be forgiven and adopted into your family. Thank you so much that you've not just done this to us as individuals, but you've been kind and united us to each other as you've united us to yourself. Father, please help us to this morning encourage each other and learn together as we open your word. We pray by your spirit that you'll help us to understand your word and that by your spirit you will apply your word to our lives so that we might live lives that honour Jesus as he deserves. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this weekend we're looking at the call of God on our lives. In the two talks this morning, we're going to focus upon how you might expect God to actually call you. Then in tomorrow's two talks, we'll talk a little bit more about what life is like that God has called you to. Now, I'm sure that you know that calling language has been hijacked. I'm sure you know that. And it's not just by Christians. This is the surprising thing. Let me demonstrate. Oprah has some advice to you about finding your calling. On the screen, um, as you might expect from Oprah's organisation, there are some special gems in this article. Let me read to you my personal favourite. Before I tell my life what I want to do with it, I must listen for what my life wants to do with me. <laughs> Deep. Deep. <laughs> uh, I searched up uh, calling. I wanted to find out what the world thinks about calling. And on my search page, the WikiHow site caught my attention because it promised, can we flick over there? It promised not just an article on calling, but an illustrated article. <laughs> and it didn't let me down, did it? Quite amazing. Do you think they just stole those pictures from a 1980s Christian campsite brochure? <laughs> and photoshopped WikiHow onto the Bible. you think that's what they've done there? I, I think perhaps. Uh, on the Better Up blog, uh, next page, they, they, they gave me 16 tips on how to find my calling. And if 16 isn't enough for you, Forbes magazine gives you 20. Next slide. There it is. Let me give you some of my personal favourites from Forbes magazine. Number five, burn your plans. Number 11, roam a library. And number 19, be authentically uncool. All right, I got that last one down. I got, I got that. But Are you starting to get a feel for the quality of advice that you can find online about finding your calling? You're starting to get a feel for the quality? What even is calling? Most of the articles that I've just quoted to you do not even define what they mean by calling. Here is the closest that two of them got to a definition. From WikiHow, 
By looking within yourself to identify what's most important to you and making room for your passions, you can begin to uncover that special thing you were born to do. And from the Better Up blog, your life's calling is what makes you feel that life is meaningful. It helps you live a purposeful life. Callings look different for everybody. Are you any wiser on what a calling really is? You know, the reason these articles struggle to define calling is because calling is a totally biblical concept. And these articles are not written from a Christian point of view whatsoever. Calling takes its name from the thing God does by his sovereign will as he directs people everywhere into their various situations of life. But if you're a secular writer tasked with explaining calling without reference to God. What hope have you got? Good luck. But do you know what saddens me even more than these non-Christian articles on calling? It's the Christian ones. The Christian blogs and books on calling that say virtually the same thing as the non-Christian stuff. Let me quote to you from one book I read recently. Uh, I think we've got it on the screen, yep. Though we have to discover our calling, we should also recognise that it is already in us, very much a part of our identity, waiting to be discovered and expressed, like perennial seeds that once planted produce flowers that come up year after year. And again, the process of discovering our calling is as subtle as sign language, where every movement and gesture counts for something. And again... We come to know the will of God as a life calling through experience itself. We discover what our calling is in the same way that an artist paints on a canvas or a person falls in love. Now what troubles me about these quotes is where they leave me looking. Do you notice that? As I try to find my true calling from God, it's all about me looking at me and my experiences and what God has put in me and what each gesture and movement of mine tells me about my calling. Do you really think the best way to find your calling is by looking at yourself? We need to look at God's word. We need to look at God's word to work out our calling. So this week, this weekend, sorry, let's listen to what God says that his calling is all about. The Bible introduces us to a God who calls his people. From the very early chapters of Genesis, where God called this unknown nomad called Abraham, called him to leave his home country and go to an unknown land, from that early beginning all the way through to the great fulfilment in the Gospels, where Jesus calls 12 unimpressive fishermen and tax collectors to leave their day jobs and follow him and fish for men. The Bible is very clear that God is a God who calls his people. What is less clear is exactly what God calls his people to. And part of the reason for the lack of clarity is that there is more than one type of call from God in the Bible. So we're going to start with the broadest call and we're going to work in. We're at point one, the universal call. God makes a universal call to every human being throughout the world to repent of their sin and to turn back to him. 
This universal call of God commands all people everywhere to turn back to God and to receive salvation. Perhaps the best place to see it is in the offers of Jesus in the Gospels, often addressed to anyone or everyone or all people. So a good example would be on the screen, Matthew 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. There is the universal call that goes out to all humanity, to sinners everywhere. Now, why doesn't that universal call seem to work universally? Why doesn't it? Now, one of the things we do at the Bible Talks at UNSW is that, well, I don't do all the work. We've got some clever students there. I make them think for themselves a bit. And looking around, I'm seeing lots of clever people here. So this weekend, I'm going to make you do some of the work as well. You're going to need to do a bit of thinking with the person sitting next to you. I hope you chose your seat wisely. Here's the question I'd like you to talk about and think about with the person sitting next to you. You've got 30 seconds. Why don't you have a chat about this question? Why do you think the universal call doesn't seem to work universally? Go for it. Okay, let's, uh, let's have a think about this together. By the end of the weekend, I might even make you give me some answers. There you go. There's the little warning, but I, I think you'll be fine with it. Are you sitting next to someone clever? Have you worked it out? Yeah, I'm sure you are. I'm sure you are. All right, the Bible tells us that we humans, caught in our sinful rebellion against God, are by nature spiritually incapable, on our own, of rightly responding to God's universal call. Ephesians 2 tells us why. Ephesians 2 up on the screen, verses 1 and 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Our human problem is that because of our rebellion against God, we are all, by nature, dead in our sins. And dead people are not very responsive. The Apostle Paul speaks about this inability that's built into human sinful nature. It is the incapacity of responding the right way to God's generous universal call in um, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. On our own... In our spiritually dead state, we human sinners are incapable of responding the right way to God's generous universal call. But all is not lost because God can powerfully change the life of any human rebel through his powerful personal call, the special call to the elect. We're at point two, the special call to the elect. The special call to God's elect people is an individual call that flows out of God's personal decision to choose or to elect individual people to be saved. The Apostle Paul shows us how this call fits within God's sovereign plan in Romans 8, 28 to 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. 
For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This chain of events that we're talking about in these verses begins with God's predestining election of sinners and then moves unstoppably through an unbroken chain, through God's calling, and then through justification, and then unstoppably on to glorification with Christ. It's an unbreakable chain of events that define the life of a Christian. And God's personal call is a critical link in that chain. It's this unbreakable chain that reinforces the guaranteed effective nature of this personal call of God. That is why you'll sometimes hear this personal call of God referred to as the effectual call. It always does its work. It always, this call always achieves its purpose of salvation. If God has elected you, predestined you for salvation, then this call is irresistible. Thankfully, this is a call that you can't possibly miss. God's plans and purposes in this personal, effectual call will not be thwarted in any way, even by human sin, because God gives his spirit to every elect person he calls. And with the enlightening work of God's spirit in our hearts, you and I receive this special call from God and will respond rightly to it. Now, being a Presbyterian church, I am sure that you have heard of the Westminster Confession. It was actually instigated by an Act of Parliament in England in 1643. It's a long time ago. The English Parliament called upon, and I quote, learned, godly, and judicious divines to meet in Westminster Abbey in order to produce advice on issues of worship, government and discipline in the Church of England. Those learned, godly and judicious divines then met regularly for five years. Five whole years and they produced a masterpiece of theology that we now call the Westminster Confession. And you know what the English Parliament then did? Amazingly, incredibly, they wanted all of their citizens to know the great theological truths that the Westminster Confession had brought together. But remember, it's the 17th century. The majority of the population was illiterate. So how do you teach good theology to illiterate, uneducated people? The Roman Catholic Church generally went for pictures and images. That is why Michelangelo painted on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. That is why. But pictures and images don't usually lead people to good theology. Can you guess where pictures and images normally lead people to? Sadly, away from good theology and towards idolatry. And you might still see that problem today in the Roman Catholic Church. But true Christianity is unshakably a word-based faith. And the reformers came up with a much better solution. The answer was a catechism. A 
catechism. A catechism is a series of questions and answers that can be wrote, learned by heart. So you don't need to be able to read to learn a catechism. You just learn that question is answered by this answer and, and on you go and you learn all the questions and all the answers. Um, the Westminster crew produced two very good catechisms, a shorter one and a longer one. Now, let me quote to you two questions and answers that relate to our issue of this special calling of the elect. Up on the screen, question 30. How does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? Answer, the Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. Question 31. What is effectual calling? Answer. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the Gospel. Can you imagine how good your theology would be if you just memorised the Westminster Catechism? You can see why it was so good, can't you? And that is exactly what many illiterate, uneducated peasants did back in the 17th century. The Westminster Catechisms are beautiful theology made simple and made memorable and many illiterate peasants are safe in heaven with Jesus now because they heard and understood the beauty of the gospel through the Westminster Shorter Catechism. This effectual call, it is the main game in the Bible. It is the main call of God that we see in the Bible. So let's have a look at it in its natural habitat. Please turn your Bibles to Romans 1, the example in Romans. We're at point three, the example in Romans. And have a look at verses 1 and 2. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And let's stop it there for a moment. The first call that we come across here in these verses is not the special effectual call of the gospel. The call mentioned in verse 1, it's a unique one-off call that Jesus made to the passionate Jewish Pharisee that at that time was named Saul. Now, first century Greco-Roman letters had a familiar introductory kind of code, if you like, that was followed in letters. It went something like this. You introduce yourself first, then you name the person or the people that you are writing to, and then you greet them. Did you notice that this former Pharisee writing this letter can't even introduce himself without mentioning the gospel? That is because the gospel changed everything for this Pharisee, including his name. That's why he introduces himself not as Saul, but as Paul, the Christian apostle. Now, when Paul talks about the gospel, what he, what he means is, it's simple, it's the message about Jesus. The good news about Jesus' life, death and resurrection and Paul immediately tells us that the gospel is the long-awaited fulfilment of all God's Old Testament promises. This former strict Jewish Pharisee is saying that the Old Testament scriptures that he knew very well, he's saying they are all about Jesus. 
In verses 3 to 4, Paul unpacks what the gospel is, his gospel. But it may not be the exact gospel summary that you're expecting. Let's have a look, verses 3 and 4. Regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, we're basically told two very interesting things about Jesus. As Paul says, this is what the gospel is. He tells us two things. From a human perspective, Jesus can trace his ancestry back to great King David. And secondly, his resurrection from the dead declares him to be the Son of God. Now, do those two things strike you as just a little odd? Let let, let me put it this way. If you were trying to explain the gospel to someone, are they the two facts you'd use? Jesus is a descendant of David and he rose from the dead. Are they the two you'd use? It's a little bit interesting, isn't it? Why those two facts? Descended of David, raised from the dead. That's the gospel. They may seem like random facts, those two, but in the Bible, when those two things come together, something really special happens. And I'd like you to have a think about it before we talk about it. So with the person next to you, here's your equation. Descendant of David plus resurrection equals... Enjoy, 30 seconds, go for it. Okay, let's try and work this out together. Now you're sitting next to someone clever. I'm sure you are. Excellent. Okay. The great... Well, actually, come over to Acts 2 where we'll we'll have a little bit of a look because they collide, those same two facts collide also in Acts 2. Just flick back one one book to Acts chapter 2. It'll help us to work out what these two things coming together mean. In Acts 2, we've got the Apostle Peter giving the first ever Christian sermon. And it's all about Jesus. Um, Have a look at Acts 2, verses 29 to 32. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come... He spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. David descent, resurrection. It's the same thing, isn't it? It's because the great Old Testament hope, the great hope of the Jewish nation was a descendant of David who would save his people and reign over them as a good king forever. Now, you know the hardest thing about reigning forever? Can you guess the hardest thing about reigning forever? Living forever, exactly. You got it. The hardest thing about reigning forever is living forever. So God promised King David that one of his descendants who could reign forever would not stay dead that God would not leave this guy to rot in the grave. And God had spoken and said, this guy will be the holy Messiah, the great chosen king. 
Peter is saying in this sermon that Jesus has been shown to be the great Messiah, Christ, King because of those two things. He's a descendant of David who didn't stay dead. The resurrection proves that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah King. And that means Jesus rightly belongs on the throne as world ruler forever. Now, come back over to Romans 1. Come back over to Romans 1. Paul summarises the gospel in four words at the end of verse 4. Jesus Christ our Lord. His name is Jesus. He is the Christ, the great Messiah King. And he reigns now and forevermore as Lord over all the earth. Jesus Christ our Lord. How should you and I respond to the King that God has set on his throne over all the earth? As Paul explains the gospel, he also explains the right response to the gospel. It's there in verses 5 and 6. Through him, we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Here is the special, effectual call of the gospel. It is the call to personally belong to Jesus as your Lord, your King. It is a call that goes out to Gentiles, not just Jewish people. It goes out to Gentiles all over the world who've been chosen by God for this salvation. And it is a call to put your faith in Jesus and then to live obediently in accordance with that faith. The obedience of faith. See, our human rebellion against God was pretty much the disobedience of unfaith. But Jesus' death and resurrection as the world's Messiah mean that we can be restored back to the right way of living under God, to the obedience of faith. What a privilege to be personally called back into this very special relationship with God. Before the gospel, this privilege had historically only been focused on just one nation, Abraham's descendants, the Israelite nation. But the gospel is the good news of this privilege going out to people called from every nation. Look at verse 7. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people. Some translations, holy people, saints. means exactly the same thing. Holy people, saints, it means to be set apart for God. And it was a very Jewish title. It literally means set apart and that's what the Jewish people were. They were different from all the other nations around. They were set apart for God. But now Jesus has given his life as a sacrifice for sin and and risen from the dead. He is the great Messiah King over all the earth. Now, individuals from every nation can be personally called to be saints, to be holy people to God, set apart for the privilege of this relationship with God. You know, the Roman Catholic Church takes that word saint and, uh, well, tries to restrict it back to just a few elite 
privileged, select Christians. But that is not what the Bible does. This is the privilege God personally calls every Christian believer to enjoy. Now, one of the reasons why we're looking at Romans 1 is because it describes the personal, effectual call of the gospel in two different ways. In verse 6, it is the call to belong to Christ. In verse 7, it is the call to be God's holy people. They are not different calls. They are two different ways of speaking about the same effectual, personal call of God in the gospel. Now, one of the interesting things about language is that you can talk about the same topic in a whole lot of different ways, can't you? Let me give you an example. I married a girl. I married my friend. I married a med graduate. I married Michael and Marion's daughter. I married an impressive chef. I married a kind and godly Christian. I married a woman I love and I am not a bigamist. Okay? Language allows us to speak about the same thing in lots of beautiful different ways. The Bible talks about God's precious personal effectual call to the elect in a similar variety of ways. Let me give you just a few. 1 Corinthians 1.9 says that believers have been called into fellowship with God's Son. 1 Thessalonians 4.7 says that this call is to a holy life. Galatians 5.13 adds that we have been called to Christian freedom. Colossians 3.15 says we've been called to peace. 1 Peter 2.9 talks about being called out of darkness and into God's wonderful light. 1 Peter 2.21 teaches that this call is to a life of perseverance and suffering. And there's more verses. We could just keep going on and on. They're all speaking about the same personal, effective call of God to his elect people. Like a beautiful, precious diamond with all these beautiful facets, you can describe God's effectual call to the elect in all kinds of different ways. They're not different calls, just different facets of the one beautiful call that brings you to be one of God's children through the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you want to understand how the Bible uses the language of calling, this personal call of God to save those who he has elected, this is where nearly all of the action is. And what more beautiful call could you possibly receive? It is a life-changing, earth-shaking, salvation-producing call. And yet, most Christians want to focus God's calling onto what job they should do. Can you see that to focus the calling of God onto employment opportunities or self-fulfillment choices is actually to miss the big thing the Bible is using calling language to speak about? The truly important call of God is this personal call to salvation in Jesus. That's the call that the Bible focuses on. And that's the call that you and I should focus on if we're going to be biblical in our use of calling language. So we're going to stop here. I'm going to pray that God will help us to do this this weekend. And then we'll take it up from here in our next talk. Please pray with me. Our Father God, thank you for this beautiful, effectual call of the gospel. We're so sorry that as sinners, 
we rejected that universal call that uh, went out to all the earth in our sin, in, in our deadness because of that sin, there was no way we could possibly respond. But we thank you so much that in your kindness you broke through our spiritual deadness and brought life through this beautiful, effectual, individual, personal call of the gospel. Father God, please help us to get a biblical model of how we understand calling so that we might think your thoughts after you, understanding calling the way you have spoken it. Please help us this weekend to learn well. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen.